Hi folks, uh, John here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is being recorded with a brand new microphone. Something went wrong with the old one. It happens. I'm still learning this new one. It's a more powerful microphone with actual gain dials and settings and things. And I'm not gonna lie, you'll notice a few things on this episode like a lack of a pop filter and a moment where the gain suddenly gets turned up a bit and you'll notice the audio suddenly gets louder. I don't think it's anything that's going to be too frustrating, but I did want to let people know in advance and apologize to those who are sensitive to those popped P's and B's. Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Elvira's movie macabre, Monstroid. The episode had a premiere date of May 12th, 1984, but the actual movie that Elvira showed that evening, Monstroid, premiered in July of 1980 at least according to most sources. As can sometimes happen with low-budget independent films, there are conflicting premiere dates because the movie didn't get a wide release, and it probably showed in a number of smaller venues like drive-ins and single-screen theaters, so it could have come out as early as 1979. It definitely started production much earlier than that, some sources say 1971, some say 1975, and it's obvious that a lot of the delays were due to locking down funding and securing a cast that would work for very little money. Even the title remained in flux right up through release. The print Elvira uses for this episode is called Monster and not Monstroid, and there were alternative titles of It Came From The Lake and The Toxic Horror. This isn't uncommon for low-budget independent films either. A new title and a new ad campaign can sometimes sell the same movie to the same audience twice. Italian horror is notorious for pulling this trick. The film was written by Kenneth Hartford, Walter Robert Schmidt, Herbert Strock, and Garland Scott, and according to the credits, at least, it was directed by Hartford. But none of the four men had much in the way of writing or directorial experience apart from Strzok, who claimed for the rest of his life that he served as an uncredited director while Hartford did nothing more than a few scenes in some of the second unit material. Strzok certainly has no reason to lie given the film's reputation as drive-in movie filler. He certainly didn't sound proud of his work on the film, and he sort of relegated it to the pile of movies he did to pay the bills like The Crawling Hand, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, and How to Make a Monster all of which have become cult classics, ironically enough. Although a number of similarly cult classic actors were courted for the lead role, including Doug McClure, a B-movie icon if ever there was one, and one of the two inspirations for Simpsons mainstay Troy McClure, they eventually settled on James Mitchum, son of legendary character actor Robert Mitchum. The younger Mitchum was mostly known for war movies, westerns, and crime dramas, making this a rare appearance in genre film for him. Tony Isley, who plays plant manager Pete, was also mostly known for crime dramas and westerns, in his case mostly on television, where he was a frequent day player and guest star. 
But he does have some genre credits in things like The Wasp Woman, The Navy vs. The Night Monsters, The Mighty Gorga, and Dracula vs. Frankenstein, so aficionados of Elvira's brand of late-night drive-in fare might at least recognize his face. From here, I confess, the cast gets a little harder to pin down. John Carradine is, of course, instantly recognizable as the village priest in a role that intersects with but never really impacts the plot. We last talked about him a couple of Halloweens ago in the movie Legacy of Blood, also on Movie Macabre, but with over 350 roles and a penchant for genre work, I can't imagine we won't see him again. And Phil Carey, who plays the sexist and crude executive Barnes, who's managing things from New York, spent something like 30 years doing One Life to Live. That all tracks pretty well. But the list of cast members in the closing credits doesn't say who plays who, and my usual sources are a little bit vague. IMDb says that Coral Castle plays Secretary Laura Manley, Connie Moore plays reporter Patty Clark, and Maria Rubio plays the mayor's daughter Juanita. And it lists a credit for the character of Victor for Aldo Sambrell, presumably Victor Sanchez even though the actor looks a lot more like the man who plays Carlos. But that still leaves Mayor Montero, Carlos, Maria, Sam the Plant Supervisor, whose kids Andrea and Glenn Anderson are credited and are played by Ken Hartford's real-life children, the plant doctor, and Sam's wife, the woman being interviewed by Patty Clark, and a list of actors who could be any of them. Sorry folks, the system has officially broken down. To Luis Suarez, Emmanuel Smith, Leslie Meigs, Roberto Martinez, John Lamar, Paolo Baca, Pam Day, Henry Gabaldon, Janine May, Monty Cook, Felicia Robbins, Stephen Fisher, Carolyn Martin, Scott Glatt III, and Hannah Landy. I'm very sorry. I have no idea who any of you play in this movie. And of course, acting as host to the whole proceeding is Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. We've covered her three Halloweens in a row now, and as always, I recommend her memoir, Yours Cruelly, for an even deeper dive into her fascinating life story. But suffice it to say, she got her start as a Vegas showgirl, tried her hand at acting, studied comedy under the legendary groundlings with Phil Hartman and Paul Rubens, and eventually broke big with the role that would come to define her as a horror host and advertising mascot. By 1984, she'd achieved nationwide fame and her show was being syndicated around the country. As always, the episode begins with her opening the door to invite her guests in. By this point in the show's run, her welcoming monologue was dropped. And we soon fade in to her rummaging through a collection of old movies to find something to inflict on her audience. The Creature Wore a Tutu and It Came From Out of State are both rejected, but she dubs Monstroid sufficiently horrible before realizing the camera's already on and apologizing for picking her movie in public. The movie then begins with a caption card telling us that the story we are about to see is based on a true incident in Colombia in June 1971. This is, in fact, a lie, and no such incident ever occurred, and in fact, the entire town of Chamayo, Colombia, where the movie is set, doesn't actually exist. The movie is really just an amalgamation of a number of very common creature feature tropes that would honestly have already been cliches back in the early to mid-1970s when this movie was first written, let alone by 1980 when it was released. Some might be tempted to call this lazy, but make no mistake, I don't believe lazy filmmakers exist. 
I honestly don't think lazy anyone exists. I think lazy is a convenient label slapped onto people and behaviors to avoid having to interrogate them, but it's definitely not something you can say about the people who do the immensely difficult and expensive work of creating a motion picture. Monstroid took somewhere between four and nine years to shepherd into existence, and overcame the setback of having to scrounge for money and beg actors to show up. That's not something you do if you're lazy, even if your imagination does tend toward the kind of set pieces that dozens of other filmmakers have done before you with more invention and more money. Case in point, this film starts with husband and wife Jose and Maria Reyes having a flirtatious evening in the woods near Lake Chimayo, with Jose pretending to be asleep while his wife dances enticingly next to him, and I think if you've seen a single monster movie produced in the last, oh, 75 years, you already know what's going to happen. I know they were opening movies like this as far back as 1959's The Giant Gila Monster, but I'm sure it dates back even further. And sure enough, a giant clawed monster comes out of the trees, only its single massive hand visible, and kills Jose while Maria screams in terror. It leaves behind only a single massive footprint, which will be the only evidence of its existence it leaves behind in the entire movie as the title card drops. Again, the title card, Monster, written in a different font than the rest of the opening and closing credits. This is not exactly a remastered high-quality print, and in fact it looks like DVD producer Shout Factory may have simply ripped it direct from a VHS copy without even removing the tracking lines, but it does contain uncensored swearing, so it's probably not the edited-for-television version that Elvira would have shown. After the credits, which end with a second reminder that this is based on a true story just in case we didn't believe the first one, we cut to a New York skyscraper where ruthless business tycoon Al Barnes is briefing troubleshooter Bill Travis on the current problems in Colombia. Both Barnes and Travis manage to be instantly unlikable, Travis gets no dialogue during this info dump, but trust me, he's not a charmer, and Barnes in particular smacks his secretary's butt like he thinks the slide projector's frame advance button is hidden there. It's really obvious they're setting both the slimy capitalist overlord and his hired goon up for a richly deserved comeuppance, but spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. The Dorado Cement Company solves all their problems, and Bill Travis comes out of this having learned no lessons at all and smelling like a rose. I'm not sure whether this is a bold attempt at subversion of the usual screenwriting rule that the protagonist should be sympathetic, or if the writers just think this is what good guys are like, but it does make the movie kind of hard to watch. The exposition dump lays it out pretty cleanly. Dorado Cement has a big plant in Chimayo, Colombia, where Maria Reyes is now seen as a witch by the locals due to her continued insistence that her husband was killed by a giant monster living in the lake. Local activist Victor Sanchez is using the local legend to stir up trouble in the area, driving workers away and slowing production. And reporter Patty Clark is putting all of it on the nightly news, despite Dorado's major advertising contract with her network and making the company look bad. It's all one big locus of interconnected problems, and Bill's job is to unravel it and fast. Speaking of Patty Clark, she's reporting live at the moment on Chimayo's 200th anniversary as a township, and the problems it's having with massive pollution from the cement plant that's killing the fish and rendering the water undrinkable, something Barnes obviously didn't see fit to mention. 
it's kind of vaguely implied that this is responsible for the monstroid, although whether that's because the toxins mutated a normal animal into a giant creature, or because some natural cryptid is having its normal food source disrupted, is never fully explained. It's also never explained why the water still looks clean and fresh, or why people are still swimming and fishing and playing frisbee on the beach with their dog, like teens Glenn and Andrea. Their dog Takai runs out into the water to catch the disc while Glenn, an amateur photographer, takes some snapshots. But although he sees something briefly surfacing, he's unable to get a picture of it. But when the two leave to join the anniversary festivities, the dog spots some bubbles rising to the surface and runs away yelping. Don't worry. This is not a movie where the dog dies. Honestly, it's not a movie where all that many people die. We then cut back to Elvira, playing Frisbee with her off-screen dog, and of course the dog keeps throwing it back to her, because even the corniest of gags can still work with the right delivery. She also takes the time to mention she's pretty sure she read the true story this movie was based on in the supermarket checkout line, and she thinks it was called the El Laco Nesso Monstero. And that joke sounds so familiar to me, I think I might have seen this episode back on its initial run. I didn't get to see a whole lot of Elvira, but I know I watched it at least a couple times. I have a particular recollection of the title The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, because let's face it, once you've heard a title like that, you're not likely to forget it. Back in the movie, we meet the mayor and his daughter as they talk to Patty Clark, and you can tell this was written before Jaws even though it was released five years later, because he's not wheedling, insincere, and willing to sacrifice random victims to the gaping maw of capitalism in order to keep the plant open. Coming out after both Jaws and Star Wars could not have helped this movie. Between the game-changing way Spielberg handled characterization in creature features, and yes, Jaws is a creature feature even though it's also a nature's revenge movie, and the game-changing way Lucas handled realism in production design and special effects, this is a film that looks instantly dated compared to anything else coming out in 1980. Activist Victor Sanchez wanders through the crowd before walking over to a bench and putting one foot up on it and looking directly at the camera like he's posing for a fashion shoot in one of the most single, inexplicable, and bizarre visual moments in the whole movie, and yes, I'm aware we have several monster attacks coming up. Then goes into the church to meet with Carlos, another rabble-rouser. The priest is giving a sermon on the importance of kicking out the foreign influence that has polluted the landscape, which is kind of a ballsy speech to give to the extremely white John Carradine, and both Carlos and Victor agree that the father is correct and something needs to be done about the Americans. While talking right through the sermon in about the third row, which is so incredibly rude, take it to the back at the very least. Carlos does have some strange ideas on how to solve the problem, though. He gathers a mob and finds Maria, who's laying a wreath on her husband's grave, complete with flashback to events we've already seen, always a reliably cheap way to pad out your runtime on a low-budget movie. The group hurls rocks at her until she flees in terror, but she absolutely eats it about two feet in front of the cemetery gate, face-planting into the dirt as the mob closes in. And it's clear they both didn't expect that and didn't have the money to do a second take because they just cut away and were expected to understand that she narrowly escapes. This is just the establishing harassment. We'll get the payoff later. We then cut to Pete, the plant manager, who's in the middle of a messy breakup with Laura, a secretary at the plant. He's fallen for Juanita, the mayor's daughter, and he's apparently been avoiding Laura because he doesn't know how to tell her his feelings have changed. Laura's understandably upset that he's found some local to quote-unquote scratch your back, 
I think they meant scratched your itch, but either that was censored or the four writers combined couldn't remember what the correct idiom was. Laura storms off, vowing to take her midnight swims alone from now on, and Elvira commiserates having taken more than a few midnight swims herself. Cassandra Peterson has a knack for making literally anything sound dirty. She then gets an obscene phone call from The Breather, a recurring character on the series played by John Paragon, who's sweaty and unshaven and constantly panting with sexual arousal to a degree that's downright parodic. But despite his appearance, all he ever calls Elvira up to do is tell bad jokes. Not even dirty, just bad. And in this case, the joke is, what goes ha 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 plop, a man laughing his head off. Elvira flushes the phone down the toilet and gets back to the movie. By the way, if the name John Paragon sounds familiar to you, it's because he was Jambi the Genie on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Paragon was a creative collaborator to both Rubens and Peterson for much of his life, assisting in ways large and small with many of their projects, before finally succumbing to health conditions related to his struggle with alcoholism in 2021 at the age of 66. One of the few very sad things about discussing Elvira is the way that so many of her friends and collaborators, from Paragon to Rubens to Phil Hartman, are already gone far too soon. Back in the movie, Bill Travis finally arrives in Columbia, and his first act on getting to Chimayo is to insult Patty Clark on camera and refuse to ask any of her questions about pollution. I'm not sure what they're paying this man, but it's clearly too much. Even back in 1980 or 1971 or whenever this movie was actually made, a big company like this would have a single PR plaque to talk to reporters and everyone else would be coached to give a polite, non-committal, no comment. This is just a huge public relations disaster in the making, and it's only going to get worse before it implausibly gets better. That evening, Laura is in fact going for one of her famous midnight swims when Pete shows up to apologize for his behavior. He's still not getting back together with her, but he cares about her and he never wanted to hurt her, and none of it's going to matter because literally the second he walks out of frame, Laura is attacked and partially eaten by the monstroid. Which is certainly the cleanest possible way to break it off with an X, but it doesn't make it a good one. We see a little more of the monstroid this time out, by the way, although it's still a hand puppet shot in woefully inadequate lighting. It's basically a sea serpent, not like a pleosaur, but something like you might find in a medieval drawing of rough and uncharted waters, with long catfish-like whiskers that Elvira describes at one point as looking like a Fu Manchu mustache. Elvira comments on the death, reminding us all that this is based on a true story, before we cut back to the movie with the discovery of Laura's body the next morning by the town sheriff. Despite what has to be very obvious bite marks on the body, and presumably multiple giant monster footprints in the soft sand, Pete's subordinate Sam thinks it must have been radicals. Or possibly freshwater sharks. Sam is one of those characters whose casting is a mystery to me, and he weirdly goes unmentioned in the Wikipedia plot summary. This despite being the father of Andrea and Glenn, the direct boss of Laura, and the husband of a character we're going to see in a little bit. All those relationships are simply attributed to Pete in that plot summary, which makes him seem like a philanderer who's breaking up with his secretary to have an affair with another woman while ignoring his wife and kids. Which sounds like a more interesting emotional arc, so maybe Sam should have been removed in the screenplay stage. Anyway. Travis orders an autopsy on the body, a plot thread which will be instantly and permanently dropped, and tells Pete that they're going to have to find some way to stop Patty from reporting on the situation. 
He then grills Pete for any information he might have left out of the report, accidentally or otherwise, before Andrea and Glenn show up to tell them about the monster they saw yesterday. Well, calling him Pete, so whoever missed that Sam was their dad must have thought they had the single most emotionally distant relationship ever. Glenn tells Travis and Pete about the monster, and surprisingly enough, they're not entirely skeptical. Travis goes to get a water sample, presumably to test for mutagens? and runs into Victor Sanchez, who tells him he's determined to kick all the foreigners out of Chimayo. It's an odd scene, because this is a 70s echo horror movie in spirit, if not in fact, and in a film like this, our sympathies should be with Sanchez and against the abrupt, hostile representative of heartless and polluting capitalism. At the very least, if Sanchez is too extreme, there should be a good friendly liberal, usually a white American who's joining the cause without being radicalized by it, who serves as our viewpoint character. But no, Sanchez is just a terrorist, Travis and Pete are our protagonists, and the film is pretty much unambiguously of the opinion that big companies will clean up their own pollution voluntarily in order to avoid harm to their reputation. 43 years down the line, and it all seems hideously naive, if not outright bootlicking. Patty Clark, meanwhile, is interviewing people about the cement company and its pollution, and Carradine's priest naturally has some pretty strong opinions. Sam's wife Anne, another one of the random cast members I can't pinpoint, tries to offer a counterpoint, but when she talks about, you know how they are down here, easily influenced, superstitious... She does more harm than good, and Travis breaks up the interview when he returns and tries to confiscate the tape. Patty refuses, while getting Travis on camera trying to censor the press with the threat of violence, which you'd again think would elicit some kind of comeuppance later on, but nope, not in this movie. Incidentally, John Carradine's facial acting in this sequence is inadvertently hilarious. The director keeps cutting back to him during Anne's interview for reaction shots, and he keeps nodding with a vaguely interested expression on his face that seems to be saying, superstitious, backward. Yep, that all tracks. I don't think anyone gave him any indication of what his character was supposed to be thinking in that moment. Elvira is squarely on Patty's side, suggesting they try Preparation M for Monstroids, but she's so bored and annoyed by the movie as a whole that when she gets a wrong number, she desperately tries to keep the caller on the line just so she doesn't have to go back to watching. But they hang up on her, so it's back to Monstroid we go. And back to New York, as we cut to Barnes getting a collect call from Travis all the way down in Columbia. The secretary makes a number of jokes about his womanizing before patching him through, so that's just one more positive character trait for our apparent hero. And when Barnes gets on the line, he asks Travis why he didn't kick her fucking ass out of Chimayo. Remember, these are not the despicable villains who are going to get their just desserts at the end of the movie. They're the protagonists. Travis requisitions a radar sonar device to check the lake for anything larger than a fish, and although Barnes is skeptical, he agrees. He then calls up Patty Clark's TV network and threatens to pull his advertising if they don't get rid of the nosy reporter. It appears to be an idle threat, judging by the reaction on the other end of the line, but we're apparently supposed to feel... good about this? I swear, I've never seen an echo thriller that's pro-big polluter before, but this one seems to be taking that stance. Back in Chimayo, Clark approaches Travis and Mayor Montero and offers to give them the tape of Travis's explosive outburst in exchange for the exclusive on the monster when it's finally found. Which is bizarre and nonsensical, but again, this is such a pro-business movie that she blithely and unquestioningly accepts Travis's word that of course the plant will clean up its own pollution, 
The real problem is all these gosh-darned radicals running around and scaring people. Forget the monstroid, it's the politics of this movie that's the real terror. Central and South America have genuinely suffered under the horrors of corporate-backed oligarchies. The term Banana Republic literally comes from the Chiquita Banana Company funding coups in order to ensure business-friendly governments in nations where they had a vested interest in ensuring their taxes remained every bit as low as the price they paid for land to grow their crops and the wages they paid to their workers who were the subject of horrific safety violations to boot. Employees who worked with the fungicides that prevented banana blight had a life expectancy that could be measured in weeks. To see a film that just whitewashes all this with, eh, corporations always do the right thing eventually, is just gross. And not especially thrilling, either, as Elvira demonstrates when we come back to the host segments to find her sound asleep on the couch. She swears she didn't actually nod off, promising, If I was, may I be struck right here and now by lightning! It's followed by glitter-coated cardboard lightning bolts waved at her from off-screen in a moment I honestly can't help finding adorable. Returning to the movie, the radar sonar device is set up, on a coffee table sitting on shore, in a moment that may be entirely accurate to the device's function for all I know, but that looks so hilariously cheap and cheesy that it's impossible to take even the tiniest bit seriously. Glenn and Andrea are examining the device, which doesn't even have a token security guard there to prevent someone from picking it up and selling it for scrap, and now that his monster sighting claims seem to be vindicated, Glenn wants to stay out all night and try to get a photo of the creature. Andrea flat out refuses, and we get one of the oldest and hokiest transitions in fiction as she says, Just in case I haven't made myself clear, watch my lips closely, I am not going with you followed by a cut to her going with him. I have no idea how they restrain themselves from adding the comedy boing effect. The two of them do witness a monster attack, as it surfaces to take out a pair of drunken fishermen who don't seem even remotely concerned that all the fish in the lake are dead and inedible due to pollution. Then again, they are very inebriated. And Glenn gets a few blurry snapshots of the monstroid as the kids flee. He shows his pictures to the grown-ups the next day, and you assume they're not going to believe him because the pics are so out of focus and barely show anything discernible at all, let alone as a monster. But it's way too deep into the movie for that, and everyone immediately agrees that yes, that weird blob on the lens is definitely the eye of a 30-foot-long sea serpent. Bizarrely convenient, but at least it moves the plot along. Oh, and Travis has in fact seduced Patty Clark. I guarantee you she can do better. Rather than call in the army to destroy the monstroid, which Mayor Montero worries might have unintended consequences for the citizens, Pete thinks he can use some old dynamite lying around the plant to rig up an improvised depth charge to take it out. We get a brief cutaway to Elvira, assuring us that Pete definitely knows all about bombs. He's in one. <laughs> the dynamite is sweating nitroglycerin, which is famously unstable and dangerous, although I have heard tell that this is an urban legend, and any dynamite old enough to sweat nitro is also old enough that its chemical structure is broken down, rendering it inert, although I myself don't plan to test that claim one way or the other. But Pete nonetheless manages to assemble it into a bomb that they're going to insert into an animal carcass and dangle from a helicopter to blow up the creature. But wait, I hear you say. What about the subplot with Sanchez the Radical? And Maria Reyes? And the town priest? How are they going to resolve all that? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
That night, Carlos and a mob of villagers attack Maria as punishment for supposedly calling the monstroid to attack the two fishermen, while Sanchez attempts some sabotage on the plant with plastic explosives. The priest halts the mob by promising to exorcise the evil from Maria, so you can clearly see how this is all going to neatly dovetail into the monster plot going into the third act. Nah, I'm just funning ya. Maria tells the mob that she's not a witch, she just saw a monster kill her husband, and they respond by burning her at the stake while John Carradine shakes his head sadly. Sanchez gets his foot caught while setting up the plastic explosives, blowing himself to bits, and although Maria survives the fire, she has to be airlifted to a hospital via helicopter. This leads to a weird digression where Juanita and the sheriff hijack a random helicopter that happens to be in the area rather than wait for theirs to come back, but that's mostly a consequence-free bit of shoe leather to pad out the runtime, and we're quickly settled into the final monster disposal plan with all of the subplots completely irrelevant to the movie. While the townsfolk, including John Carradine and Patty Clark's news crew, wait on shore, the helicopter flies around dangling the animal carcass as bait. But before they find the monstroid, Elvira does one of those bits that never fails to bring a smile to my face. She pretends to interview some of the viewing audience about the movie, asking leading questions that are then intercut with clips from characters in the movie being interviewed by Patty Clark. What do you think of the movie? It's ridiculous. How do you feel about the way the producers chose to tell this story? Sinful ways, my child. Would you care to tell us how you feel about the movie? You don't want to put it on your little TV camera. It's one of those gags that can never go wrong for me. Returning to the climax of the movie, the bait finally does bring the monster to the surface, and it looks very much like the kind of thing you might see in an old 50s Roger Corman movie. A large latex puppet with stylized features and limited articulation that resembles the sea serpents of old. By the standards of a low-budget quickie with limited production values, it's reasonably impressive, but it's instantly unconvincing in a post-Star Wars, post-Alien era. That was always Corman's famous lament. You just couldn't get away with cheesy rubber monsters after George Lucas made everything look like a goddamn documentary. The monstroid takes the bait, but in a classic you-had-one-job-Pete moment, Pete drops the detonator into the lake. It's not radio-controlled, either. It's on the end of a long cable, and the other end is in the carcass, and the carcass is in the creature's mouth. So Travis dives in after it, and the sheriff gets into a motorboat to distract the monster into swimming in circles long enough for, first, another whole host segment from Elvira. It's a cute little mock mailbag segment where she reads letters from her audience and uses them as a springboard for her jokes. I especially love the fake letter she gets from a jealous woman whose boyfriend likes her show maybe a little too much and also long enough for Travis to get his hands on the device and set it off. Not gonna lie, this whole stretch of the movie is tedious and repetitive, and thank God there's a host segment to break it up a little. In another movie, it would also have been the despicable Travis's final redemption in death, but I genuinely don't think this movie realizes Travis is despicable and not a lovable and charming anti-hero, so he and the sheriff both survive the explosion. The day is saved, the monster's dead, the radicals have fallen victim to their own malice, and Maria is umble-umble-umble. Look, she's really not germane to the plot, so don't worry about her physical condition. That's about all she wrote, except, of course, for the obligatory stinger where the dog finds a nest in the woods with hundreds of monstroid eggs preparing to hatch. 
Which isn't a bad way to end the film, but honestly, even the filmmakers had to know it was unlikely that this one was going to do well enough to get a sequel. All that's left is for Elvira to deliver her thoughts on the ending, those big monster eggs would make great huevos rancheros, and remind us all that she got paid for sitting through this movie. What's your excuse? She signs off with her usual catchphrase, unpleasant dreams. But I don't think Monstroid was giving anyone nightmares. Not unless they're about encroaching capitalist propaganda. Which, I guess, sure, maybe. It is the scariest thing about this film. And will I hang on to this movie? Honestly, on its own, I wouldn't. I enjoyed the host segments, but Elvira's not like Rift Tracks, where her commentary plays over the movie as it progresses, and she makes jokes about every hokey production decision and cheesy line of dialogue, and the film's weird pro-pollution stance. This would make a great Rift Tracks, and if they did one, I'd buy it. But on its own, undiluted, this film is a little tough to take. But luckily, this is an Elvira 2-pack, with a second feature that I've already seen and genuinely love, but you'll just need to wait until next Halloween to find out what that is. And if you want to talk about capitalist propaganda, post-Lucasfilm indie horror, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. My watchlist on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes, if there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, as you might have noticed, I've been working my way through the Romero zombie movies at the rate of about one a year. Given that they came out so far apart, it didn't feel right to just breeze through them every other episode like I do with some other franchises. But before the calendar rolls over to 2024 and we tackle Land of the Dead, there's an odd little curiosity in the Dead canon, a remake of the original authorized and produced by Romero himself. So let's take a sidestep back to 1990 and see what it looks like when Romero reimagines his own classic as we look at the remake of Night of the Living Dead. See you then.